bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So it's summer, and the weather's heating up. You're probably looking for a reprieve from the hot weather. So close your eyes, unless you're driving. Uh, Close your eyes and picture yourself at the ocean. It's evening. Ocean's nice and calm. You're on the beach all by yourself. Evening's just setting setting in. Be nighttime pretty quick. Air's cool and you're just out in the water. Feels really nice. You're cooling down. And you're just kind of floating there looking up into the sky at the few first few stars that are starting to poke up and just kind of imagine yourself there and relax a little bit. I don't know if there's been a piece of music ever written that's kind of impacted the human psyche as much as as the soundtrack that went with the movie Jaws. So it was 45 years ago um, that that movie came out. Uh, It was composed, the soundtrack was composed by John Williams. Uh, Just an iconic soundtrack for a movie. And it's kind of become what some say is kind of a cultural... um, general sound or, or a signal for danger. Um, so whenever you hear that, it's it's signaling some kind of danger, whether it's Jaws or, or whatever. And there's been a lot of uh, stories in the news lately uh, of shark attacks off the east coast of North America from Florida all the way up to a couple just recently in New York area. And so I started kind of doing a little bit of um, dig digging about that. And, you know, I think you're either like when it comes to like your love of wildlife, it's like you're either like a land person or you're like an ocean person. And if you're a land person like me, you probably don't know like a lot about ocean species and ecology and maybe vice versa. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but I just find it all fascinating and you know we're always talking about as land people land wildlife people we're always talking about you know how cool the big land carnivores are the wolves the cougars the the grizzly bears the brown bears you know all this kind of stuff and you know equally impressive if probably not 10 times more impressive are the sharks and there are sharks great white sharks in particular in canadian waters off the east coast of Canada, Nova Scotia area. And so there's an organization um, that does shark research uh, called OSEARCH. So it's like a play on words between ocean and research. And I came across some information that they just recently put out some social media and they tag sharks and then they follow them up and down the east coast of North America, Great Whites uh, in particular. And they have one that's tagged that's traveled almost 8,000 kilometers from Nova Scotia to Florida and back in 167 days uh, after they tagged it. 
they keep track of all of these tagged sharks mo moving back and forth. And <clears throat> here's here's some some sharks, some great white sharks that are off the coast of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia um, just in, in late June. So there's a seven foot long juvenile female that's 184 pounds, a nine foot long juvenile that's 578 pounds. There's a 10 foot juvenile female that weighs almost 700 pounds. Uh, an adult male that was 13 feet long uh, and weighs 1,700 pounds. Uh, it was last located by its GPS signal off the satellites near Sable Island on June the 10th. And then there's a sub-adult female great white shark that they have tagged that's 11 feet long and 1,264 pounds. And she was pinged off the southwest uh, side of Sable Island uh, right at the end of June. So in the in the late latter decades of the 20th century uh, great white shark populations in Canadian waters and and you know off off of the east coast of North America were decimated uh, they were caught as bycatch by commercial fishermen uh, accidentally captured and and killed and and then it wasn't until the mid 1990s that they um, they actually became protected so I've also been seeing some stuff in the news and social media that off the coast of Canada, east coast of Canada, that people are starting to see more great white sharks. Uh, they're getting um, sightings, they're getting videos of them um, feeding on seal carcasses. And so there's, they're starting to, from what I understand, you know, in Nova Scotia's Cape Breton Island region, uh, some fears that great white sharks uh, are are increasing in population off off Canada's east coast. There was an attack off Cape Breton Island uh, last summer uh, on um, a lady in uh, that was swimming or ended up in the water somehow, but was attacked. And so, kind of that's on people's mind. The sightings, you know, a few social media um, videos of great white sharks kind of getting everybody, uh, I guess, in a bit of a um, concern in Atlantic Canada that great white sharks are increasing in numbers. Well, the Canadian Atlantic Shark Research Laboratory, in cooperation with the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy out of the United States, just published a new study in the Canadian Journal of Fisheries and Aquatic Sciences. Uh, it's a new study that looks at the distribution of the endangered great white shark in Canadian waters. And the scientists report, uh, they use the underwater detection systems uh, with the tag, tagged animals. And their research is suggesting that the population in Canadian waters of great white sharks is stable, but it's not actually growing. Of the 227 tagged sharks, uh, only about 25% of those uh, make the trip up to uh, Canadian waters. The organization OSEARCH has got a really cool app um, if you just Google um, Shark Tracker Nova Scotia, uh, you'll find it. 
but uh, if if you want to go to www.ocearch, like osearch.org slash tracker slash, uh, you can get this app. Uh, it's really cool. And in sort of like real time, it shows you where all of these sharks are that are coming into Canadian waters uh, and what species they are and all the background information. They got them named uh, and, and the sizes, like, you know, I was saying these, uh, you know, 1,700 and 1,200-pound sharks and stuff, they all have names, and you get a bit of a bio on them, and it's kind of cool. You can actually keep track of the movements of these great white sharks in and out of Canadian waters and you know, like this one that made, that went all the way from Nova Scotia down to Florida and back. So, uh, pretty cool. Uh, top predators scared the shit out of me. I'd rather deal with a grizzly bear in the mountains than, uh, something like this in the water, but, uh, it's a cool wildlife story. So long live jaws. So last month was the 30th anniversary of the moratorium that was placed onto the East Coast cod fishery in 1992. Um, it was the biggest layoff in Canadian history and more than 30,000 jobs were lost in the Atlantic region of Canada. Three generations of fishing families tore apart culture, history, the nuances of the cod fishery embedded into Canadian Atlantic history was just the the, the losses just can't be measured measured in dollars, but thirty thousand jobs were lost. So the moratorium um, was designed to allow the cod species to rebuild. Uh, but to this day the populations of codfish off the East Coast are still at low levels and the fish, the moratorium has never been list, listed, lifted. It's an interesting story as well from the perspective of the North American model of wildlife conservation. Uh, we hear so much how the hunting community in North America holds that up as being the greatest success story in wildlife management the world has has ever known and and the tenants that go with it Curtis and I did a podcast a few episodes ago with uh, Mateen Hasimi from UBC Okanagan uh, who published a paper uh, called indigenizing the North American model of wildlife conservation so if you haven't listened to that that's got a slightly different perspective on it but just just the, the model as we know it and the tenants. Um, it's always applied, in my way of thinking, it's always been applied to land wildlife and not so much the ocean. But that's wildlife as well. And it belongs to everybody. And I think this story of the collapse of the East Coast cod fishery and the moratorium and the impact that it had on people and cultures and the population never recovered. I think that has to be in my mind, an example of one of the greatest failures of the North American model of wildlife conservation that there is maybe in North America. 
I would definitely hold it up as the greatest failure in Canada for sure. So the two tenants I think that kind of come into play here is um, the North American model of wildlife conservation has the tenant that says science um, shall be the proper tool to discharge wildlife policy. So science-based wildlife management and markets for game are prohibited. So the end of market hunting um, at the beginning of the 1900s in there was, was heralded as a success of the North American model of wildlife conservation because it, it was market hunting that was driving uh, various populations almost to extinction. And when wildlife was, the, the concept where wildlife that belongs to the public is not a commercial commodity with unregulated harvest, um, that, that is held up as a, as a, as a triumph of the, of the model because it allowed a lot of species to recover. But in this situation, you know, the reason I think that the cod fishery collapse is, is a failure is, is on those two tenants. One, I don't know why or where we ever separated out that wildlife that live in the ocean are not off limits to commercial harvesting. Like why are salmon and cod and halibut commercially fished, but white-tailed deer and elk and wild turkeys aren't? It's a philosophical thing, but it was, in my mind, something that the architects of the model uh, missed and, and nobody ever seems to talk about. And I think that's a failure of the model in the sense that it did not include or emphasize or set in motion a philosophy or a pattern of thought for wildlife managers to question commercial fishing of marine species. The other part of the other tenant I think that was a failure was uh, the science-based wildlife management. So a lot has been written on this, but essentially the collapse of the fishery was kind of based on science messing up. And scientists were modeling the cod stocks and they were putting into a lot of assumptions into the modeling of the cod stocks and they're basically they were spitting out projections that just showed the cod stocks were growing and they could sustain harvest levels increasing harvest levels but there was a bunch of errors associated with those assumptions <clears throat> and the models themselves were just not accurate they weren't calibrated a lot of the inshore fishermen off the east coast of Canada were telling the federal government scientists that we're starting to see declines in our catching catch rates. Something's going on here. We might be on the cusp of a major problem with the unlimited greatest fishery the world has ever known on, on the Grand Banks. And scientists ignored what the fishermen were saying and they just stuck to their models until the fishery, the stocks actually collapsed. And then the federal government had to impose the moratorium in 1992. I've seen it written where a former scientist, uh, the federal government said that um, scientists and managers at the time did not think that the inshore fishery, the fishermen, was a reliable source of information so they would not take it into consideration in their models because 
what the fishermen were saying with their catch rates was contradictory to the models. And so they let the models um, prevail and they kept letting out um, high quotas until the, the, the population collapsed. So, you know, here we are 30 years later and the question is, did we learn anything from the East Coast Cod Fishery Moratorium? Well, there's a few stories of popped ups in the news to do with marine fisheries uh, that I haven't covered before. So on the East Coast, herring off the coast of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick have been declared uh, a species that is in the critical zone their populations are in a critical zone, conservation zone. So DFO has recently come out and cut the herring fishery quota by 33%. So it's gone down to about 24,000 tons from last year when it was set at 35,000 tons. Now some scientists with some non-government uh, environmental groups uh, on, the, on the East Coast said that a 66% cut was actually what was called for and what was needed. They, uh, the scientists in this organization said that DFO had spent several years developing a new modeling process for the herring fishery. And that called for uh, an evaluation of the management strategy uh, for the herring stocks. And one of the scientists uh, said that that process, DFO's own modeling process and review of the management strategy actually recommended a larger cut of the herring fishery quota and that did not happen. So the scientists from the Ecology Action Center who said that a larger cut was needed in the herring quota for conservation um, said, but before the decision was announced, the industry had proposed a 10,000 ton quota cut from 35 to 25,000. And then when the federal government came out and announced what they were actually doing, their DFO's number was very close to what the industry's recommendation was, but the scientists were saying DFO's own modeling and management strategy evaluation said that the cut was more around 66%. So again, um, yeah, some kind of things being echoed uh, from the COD moratorium. The cod fishery in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans just announced a one-year closure of the commercial cod fishery in the northern Gulf of the St. Lawrence uh, in Newfoundland, Labrador, and Quebec because of concerns over the cod stocks in the northern Gulf region. Fisheries and Oceans from northern BC um, said it's going to be taking a precautionary approach to manage fisheries in northern BC and they're going to increase the numbers of closures uh, for the 2022-2023 year. As well, um, there has been a press release just put out in British Columbia by the BC Wildlife Federation calling into question the Department of Fisheries and Oceans um, suppressing research uh, that the BC Wildlife Federation said would confirm that seals and bycatch are a big part of the problem of the Thompson River and Chilcotin steelhead populations teetering on the brink of extinction. 
So the BC Wildlife Federation says that it thinks that DFO has research that it wants to keep out of the public eye, that if it was out there, it would oblige DFO to do something about the seal population on the west coast of Canada, uh, which other studies, the BC Wildlife Federation is saying, other studies out there are suggesting that the seal population is exploding and are responsible for some fairly significant mortality on salmon and steelhead. Uh, one of the statements I read in the news, the BC Wildlife Federation said they believe that the research that DFO refuses to release would confirm that the Thompson River and Chilcotin steelhead are in such dire straits that they should be listed under the Species at Risk Act. A few years ago, there was an emergency session of uh, the scientists that review the status of endangered species in Canada. They made a recommendation to the federal minister to list the uh, Thompson River and Chilcotin steelhead populations as endangered species, giving them federal protection, and the federal government would not do that. So one of the, the, the threads that keeps echoing through all of these stories about marine populations, um, stocks, if you want to call them that, is we keep hearing these stories of the fish populations declining, 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 collapsing, but there's never a point where there's like these whole-scale cessation of commercial fishing. Uh, a lot of people on the West Coast anyways are very upset over the last couple of years because DFO keeps placing restrictions on recreational fishing, fishing and not on commercial fishing or less on commercial fishing. And they're just saying like recreational fishing is not the cause of the, of the collapse of these salmon and steelhead populations. So apparently Canada does not have a federal policy on when it will stop commercial fishing when a fish stock has reached a critical conservation reference point. So there's no policy that says when a population's gone from here to here, that's a critical threshold and it'll stop commercial fishing. It's a case-by-case -case basis of just continuing to change, put restrictions on recreational fishing and doing everything to kind of like keep commercial fishing going rather than just wholesale closing it down. So I kind of found that sort of an interesting uh, lesson in all of this that there is no federal policy on when commercial fishing will stop. I guess it, the official policy is it stops when all the fish are gone, uh, kind of like on the East Coast. So kind of staying on the theme of, you know, um, marine wildlife. So a bunch of stuff coming out this summer about the southern resident killer whale population off the, um, the west coast of British Columbia and into the Pacific Northwest region of the United States, Washington State. So there's estimates that there's only 80 <clears throat> of these killer whales of the southern resident population. They're called uh, left uh, in, in the world. A new study that was just produced in the science journal called PLOS-1 um, called Requirements and Availability of Prey for Northeastern Pacific Southern Resident Killer Whales. 
So what this study, uh, the scientists that have been studying uh, the food availability to the killer whales of the southern resident population, uh, they said Chinook salmon represent up to 90% of the killer whale's food source, and they don't, they do know that the Chinook populations have been dwindling. <clears throat> um, they, there's estimates that the Chinook salmon populations are up to 60% lower than they were in 1984. In this research paper, the scientists said that of all their calculations, they figured that the killer whales are coming up short each day of about 30,000 calories. They need 200,000 calories a day, and they're coming up about 30,000 calories short. So what the scientists are saying is the problem for killer whales is that they're taking in less calories in a day um, than they're burning trying to get their food. Uh, so this study apparently confirms uh, what some of the coastal First Nations peoples in British Columbia have been saying for years, that an exploding seal and sea lion population is at least partly responsible for declining availability of salmon, especially Chinook. Um, the study that I'm just talking about here that was uh, published uh, by the scientists said the study estimates harbor seals are eating more Chinook than the killer whales of the southern re resident population are getting. Uh, 13 of these resident killer whales uh, have recently been confirmed to be in very poor condition, according to researchers in Washington State. It's kind of cool. They use drones and they photograph the whales when they come to the surface. Uh, they photograph them and then they can tell by the patterns of, you know, the black and white and stuff. They can pick out the same individual year after year after year of these drone photos and they show the same individual side by side. And you can see they're basically getting thinner and thinner uh, as the years go on and dorsal fins that can't, you know, stay up and they're drooping over from, from malnutrition. So just here this this summer uh, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife noted that um, there were several pregnancies in the killer whales um, but they looked to be in poor condition um, compared to um, uh, this year compared to last year staying on the theme of fisheries so Canadian Canada's Federal Minister of Department of Fisheries and Oceans um, just temporarily renewed dozens of fish farm licenses, ocean-based fish farms off the coast of BC, uh, strengthened some of the reporting requirements for the fish farms and uh, reporting the pathogens that they're finding in their farmed fish. Um, so that's basically the temporary renewal of the fish farms is the strategy the federal government is using to phase out ocean penned salmon, salmon farming um, operations off the coast of British Columbia. The big controversy is about the ones in the Discovery Islands area off the coast uh, where the fish farms are in the direct path of juvenile salmon um, and the, the uh, sea lice are getting on to the juveniles as they're passing the fish farms and then causing high levels of mortality. So they're being phased out and 
the remaining 79 uh, outside of the discovery area, the remaining 79 open uh, net pen farms that are out there on the ocean were given a two-year license only. And that's supposed to be the end of it. And that's all the fish farms out of that area of British Columbia to save um, the wild salmon. Uh, last year, a scientist from the University of British Columbia uh, published some papers about a, uh, a really bad virus that is basically transmitted from the Atlantic salmon that are in the fish farms um, through open waters into the wild Pacific salmon populations. The study that was done at UBC was tracing the virus piscine, orthrovirus, or not too good at pronouncing that, pisicine, pisicine, ortheovirus, or PRV. It's called PRV for short. So PRV is basically continuously transmitted from salmon in the ocean-based nets to wild juvenile Chinook salmon. Uh, the scientists figure for well over a decade now. There's been some accusations in the media as well that DFO has known about this uh, for, for over a decade and that the studies that confirmed that a lot of the sicknesses that um, ocean, that farm salmon had were a result of the PRV virus, uh, but that, that, that the accusations are that DFO never released that study. Um, Apparently, the federal government said that the study was never released because its authors didn't agree on the findings. And a statement I read here in the news, uh, one of the scientists said that one of the, the findings back in 2012 uh, from the DFO fish virus study is that um, some of the farm salmon diseases like anemia and jaundice were actually a result of the PRV virus. And, and it wasn't until just this past March um, that a federal court actually ordered DFO to release that information and said that suppressing the publication was not justified because uh, I believe that it was in the courts because there were organizations that were trying to, through Freedom of Information Act, trying to get that that document, which DFO wasn't re releasing. And <clears throat> finally, a, um, a federal judge ordered that it be released. A fellow named Bob Chamberlain, he's the chair of the First Nation Wild Salmon <clears throat> Alliance, uh, here in British Columbia, uh, the First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance is a group representing uh, about 100 First Nations who are opposed to open pen salmon farms off the coast of British Columbia. In reference to the earlier announcement by the federal government of uh, phasing out and, and only renewing uh, the open net pens for two more years as a strategy to, to get them out of the ocean, Mr. Chamberlain said the federal announcement is another inch forward on a very long journey to secure the future for wild salmon. However, some other interesting things out there are different perspectives. So about 80% of the salmon farms that are currently operating off the coast of British Columbia are operating in agreements with First Nations whose territories the fish are grown and harvested in. Just recently, the 
Guasalon Nakwart's First Nation and the federal government and British Columbia government just signed a memorandum of understanding that designates an aquaculture zone off the coast of British Columbia in the First Nations territory, the Guasalon Nakwart's uh, territory, of which they will be able to operate ocean based fish farms. So they're designating an aquaculture zone. The, uh, the First Nations, the Guasalon Nakwart's Nation, uh, they're actually like a combination of two First Nations on the coast of BC. In a statement about the decision of the federal minister to phase out um, the salmon farms by only renewing their license for two more years, uh, they said fails to consider nations' rights, economic stability, and the federal government's own reconciliation agenda. Ottawa's decision tells us it is more concerned about virtue signaling than actually seeking recon reconciliation with Indigenous nations. There is another organization in British Columbia called the Coalition of First Nations for Fin Fish Stewardship. And on their website, First Nations for finfish.ca, uh, it says this uh, as kind of a about us type statement. Many Canadians have been led to believe that all BC First Nations are actively opposed to salmon farming, but this is not the reality. 17 First Nations have a variety of relationship agreements with finfish aquaculture companies with the longest going back over two decades. Altogether, these nation nations' territories make up most of the south coast of British Columbia. So in a statement from um, the First Nations for Fin Fish Stewardship Organization, they released some information that showed that the direct economic benefits from salmon farming to First Nations in coastal BC is over $50 million a year uh, and has 276 full-time jobs uh, along with benefit payments contracts uh, through Indigenous-owned companies. In total, the direct and indirect economic activity factored into this First Nations interest in BC farm salmon sector is estimated to generate $83 million in economic activity, 47, almost $48 million in GDP, and 707 jobs, of which people are earning $36.6 million in wages per year. This is another really interesting thread going back to the cod moratorium in Atlantic Canada in that you have to wonder, are we actually seeing a move contrary to science of taking, finally removing these harmful fish farms out of the ocean that the science is showing that the viruses and diseases associated with them are one of the causes of the mortality of juvenile Chinook and other Pacific salmon? Are we going to heed the science or are we simply seeing moves by the federal government to transfer the operating rights of ocean-based fish farms off the coast of BC from non-Indigenous to Indigenous fish farm operators? And essentially in a few years from now, there'll be no change, you know, in the numbers of salmon farms that are operating on the ocean. I don't know if this is just a shift in ownership 
or whether or not the science is going to be taken into consideration and the new fish farms that are owned by First Nations companies are going to be put into new places on the coast that are not going to pose threats to wild salmon. I don't know. I haven't seen anything written about that. But it does kind of bring into question, you know, are we continuing like the cod moratorium back in the 1990s? Are we considering continuing to kind of see politics and, and money take precedence over science and the conservation and protection of wild salmon? So interesting how this is going to play out over the next few years uh, with who gets to farm fish in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of British Columbia. So switching over to land wildlife. So back in June, there was a, a grizzly bear killed on the Trans-Canada Highway in Yoho National Park. Uh, it just happened a few days after a, another uh, grizzly bear, a female, was killed along the same stretch of highway. The park's branch has been putting in all types of provisions um, of having no stopping areas, um, speed reductions, uh, we're seeing the same thing uh, north of where I live in southern British Columbia where bighorn sheep are getting run over on the highway by the community of radium uh, a lot during the winter time there was a big movement to reduce the speed limit one of the things I wanted to bring up about this was I know the reduction of speed limits is kind of an interim thing that folks are trying to get into place in order to save wildlife until such a time that overpasses can be built which is what they want to do in radium the national parks are already um, lots of areas have got the high fencing along the highways there's been this move to reduce the speed limits from like 90 kilometers to 70 kilometers or from 70 kilometers down to 50 kilometers and I've just sort of got a question that is whether or not that's actually going to do anything so the speed of vehicles, there's two things that come into play when it comes to wildlife collisions on the highway. The speed of the vehicle dictates how quickly the vehicle can be stopped. So if you're traveling at 90 kilometers an hour, all of a sudden, boom, there's a, there's a grizzly bear jumps out in front of you and you slam on the brakes, you might not be able to stop and you hit the animal and, and kill it. The other aspect of this is the force at which the animal is struck with. And so your average car weighs about four tons. So if it's traveling at 90 kilometers an hour, it has enough force when it impacts the animal to kill it. Bust bones, rupture organs, all those sorts of things. So my question is, is this a real effective solution in reducing the speed limits from 90 to 70 to save more wildlife will a four-ton car moving at 50 kilometers an hour still have enough force when it impacts an animal to kill it i think it will i just look at school zones there's a reason the speed limits 30 kilometers an hour because a four-ton car moving at 30 kilometers an hour can stop quicker and i don't know this for sure but if at 30 kilometers an hour you did bonk into somebody, the chances of killing them is a lot less. So my thoughts are, if you have a school zone where the speed limit is 30 kilometers an hour and you have areas on the highway where you're concerned, first and foremost, about protecting sheep and grizzly bears, then I think 70 and 50 is not adequate. 
the force of impact is still going to kill the animals. And we're going to be talking about this in a year from now, saying X number of grizzly bears and X number of sheep are still being killed in these areas where the speed limit has been reduced. So we've either got to care less about how quickly people can get from point A to point B and reduce the speed limit to match that of school zones 30 kilometers an hour. People willing to do that on the highways through the national parks? What comes first? How quickly you can get from Alberta to your summer cottage uh, in the Okanagan, Chushwap, or the um, Lake Windermere area? Or making sure that there's grizzly bears and sheep along the way for generations to come. On the topic of grizzly bears, a bit of a controversy in Canmore, Alberta. Uh, a young grizzly bear was trapped and relocated quite some distance uh, away. And there's this uh, author um, and outspoken conservationist uh, in Alberta. His name's Kevin Montegum. He's written a few conservation books. Um, he's one of these people that's kind of always held up in the media um, by their former position. So he was the former um, superintendent of Banff National Park. So you always see him given the title of the former something. I don't know why they do that. It doesn't seem to be credible thing when you're no longer doing it but he always seems to have statements in in uh, the media that seem I don't know just he seems very upset about everything that happens uh, with bears in Alberta maybe rightly so maybe they're doing a terrible job with grizzly bears in Alberta um, so they relocated this young male bear that had a couple of run-ins with people. It was wandering around, grazing on lawns and residential areas. It false charged somebody. Somebody had to hide in their car and wait for the bear to go away. And so uh, officials moved, trapped and relocated the bear. So um, Mr. Von Tegum was quoted in one of the, the articles I read that said, uh, in my opinion, this is an example of fear-based mismanagement. So he said this bear was a neutral bear. He was comfortable and relaxed around humans and only showed assertive behavior when he was startled at close range and he posed no threat. Well, I think if you're living in and around a community where there's lots of people doing stuff, the probability of being startled at close range is probably pretty high. And if he's startled at close range, that's when the grizzly bear probably does pose a threat. So maybe that's the thinking behind trapping and relocating this bear is that maybe the bear most of the time was, was not out looking for trouble and was a fairly passive bear. But maybe they were protecting the bear by making sure he wasn't going to get put in a situation where um, he was startled and had to protect himself and ended up attacking somebody. The controversy around moving the bear is that in 2018, there was a study done in Alberta that showed that only one third of grizzly bears that were translocated were successful, meaning the bears don't survive. Two thirds of the grizzly bears that are being transported, a study done in Banff showed that the farther that they were moved, the worse their survival rates were. So I kind of think maybe this is what um, Von Tegum was kind of getting at is, you know, one, we could probably coexist with this bear and by the fact that you moved it, um, it's probably going to die in terrain or the territory of a bear that 
he um, doesn't somewhere he doesn't belong or doesn't know. So interesting, you know, we hear the controversies about problem bears that are put down and people say, why don't you translocate them? So here's a bear that gets translocated and then people are upset because he got translocated because the studies show that translocations are not overly successful in Alberta for grizzly bears. Uh, can't win for losing on some of these conservation stories. Now, last year I covered a story about this white grizzly bear that showed up in the national parks, uh, Banff, Yoho area. I think uh, I was venturing in and out of Lake Louise area as well. So last summer, uh, Parks Canada, they captured the bear, they collared it, and they relocated it because it was hanging out around the railroad tracks. And the bear showed back up again. He likes being by the highway and it's back by the highway. It likes to climb those big high wildlife fences that they put up along the highway to keep the animals off the highway from being run over. So good lesson um, or proof in the fact that yes, grizzly bears can climb. It's just climbing up the big wooden poles and going over top of these 12 or 16 foot fences, whatever they are, and then showing back up on the highway. So they just can't get the bear to stay away. Um, the cat came back story here with this white grizzly bear. It's, it's actually a really sad story. Uh, you know, we got these national parks. They're, they're not for wildlife. Um, they're for people. I think that's my opinion. National parks are for people. Otherwise, we wouldn't have highways through them. We wouldn't have millions of vehicles, millions of visitors going through, you know, the gates at Banff every year. They would be for wildlife and they would be a place where wildlife could live relatively free of the interference of millions and millions of peoples and cars and railroads. But that's the reality. And in a lot of these cases, they're trying to protect wildlife, but it's putting people first. So that's why the highways get fenced and the animals are, you know, it's sort of like Jurassic Park. We're trying to get the animals to behave in the wild by being on the right side of the fence so that people can be on their side of the fence and not harm the wildlife with their motor vehicles. But in the case of the white grizzly bear, um, it, nature finds a way. And that's exactly what this grizzly bear is doing is it's just basically showing people and Parks Canada that you can't control wild bears. It wants to be on the highway. It wants to cross the highway. It wants to live where they don't want it to live. And it just keeps coming back. It's probably going to end up getting struck by a train or a car. Absolutely guaranteed that's probably going to happen. Grizzly bears don't seem to die naturally in the southern Rockies of Alberta and, and British Columbia. They tend to most often now die on the on the bumper of a of a car. So we'll keep following this story, but it's uh, in my opinion kind of a sad story of it's basically like Yellowstone got to. It's like every single one of these bears has got a collar on it and it's tracked day in and day out and it gets too close to people and is tranquilized and moved somewhere else. And I think I read a study that some grizzly bears in Yellowstone can be moved, you know, up to like a dozen times a year, tranquilized and moved farther away from people. And kind of seems like that's where the mountain parks in Canada are getting to as well. 
uh, actively controlling the movements of wild animals. In my opinion, they're no longer wild. National parks are for people. So last year, the beginning of November, the Manitoba government announced its first positive case of chronic wasting disease in deer in the province. So just recently this year, uh, in getting ready for the fall hunting season, knowing that chronic wasting disease is now part of the wild deer population in Manitoba, uh, the, federal, or the, the Manitoba government has set up some mandatory zones uh, where hunters will be required to submit tissue samples <clears throat> from uh, white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, and moose for chronic wasting disease uh, testing. Same thing in as there is in uh, the Saskatchewan and Alberta and British Columbia where uh, the hunters will then be informed uh, whether or not their animals are okay to, to eat. And so that's now a reality for hunters in Manitoba. Um, so check your hunting regulations of where these new mandatory submission zones are. It says it's along the western and southern borders of Manitoba. So I also covered a story a while ago about the big controversy in Alberta of the government, the provincial government lifting um, the moratorium on coal mining in the southern Rocky Mountains and kind of the big public outcry over that. There was no consultation period. There was kind of a bit of a free-for-all and coal exploration stuff. Uh, and then the Alberta government reacted to that public outcry and they put the moratorium um, back in place uh, and then they were going to reinitiate a public consultation period with um, with the people of Alberta about the future of the Rocky Mountains and the eastern slope of the Rocky Mountains and the coal deposits that exist there. So anyways, uh, that was four months ago, and a company that was operating on the east slopes called Cabin Ridge Holdings Mining Company announced at the end of June that it's going to sue the Alberta government over the decision to halt coal exploration and mining in in the area that it held coal leases. So they're suing the provincial government in Alberta for $3.441 billion due to the loss of net present value of their mining properties, which is actually 5,000 hectares of what's called freehold mineral rights, meaning that the coal is privately owned by the company. So it's the coal's privately owned, the coal's not a public resource in this case. However, the permitting and the authorizations to approve the coal mine, even though it's on private, privately held mineral rights, uh, would still have to go through a provincial and federal uh, approvals, possibly. And um, that's been stopped. So this company, uh, Cabin Ridge Holdings, is suing for $3.4 billion. So what do you think? It was controversial. Some people wanted the economic stimulation of coal mines opening up in southern Alberta again. And other people wanted the Rocky Mountains left the way they are. So in Ontario, um, there is a new minister recently appointed in the Ford cabinet uh, for the Minister of Natural Resources and Forestry. So Graydon Smith uh, was appointed by Premier Ford as the new Minister of Natural Resources. I've seen some 
stuff in the media of uh, like groups like the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters were saying like, you know, we look forward to working with the new minister on, on wildlife and habitat issues and, and so on and so on. So anyways, um, the new minister has been charged under the province of Ontario's Endangered Species Act. So he was charged while he was the mayor of the community of Bracebridge, which is a cottage country town in Ontario. So Graydon Smith is charged with harming or harassing Blanding's turtles, which are designated by the Ontario government as a threatened species. And he was also charged with damaging or endangering the habitat of these turtles. The town of Bracebridge itself and two other senior municipal officers that were in office at the time are also facing identical charges. Uh, it was a resident uh, of the community that brought forward the charges. Uh, they have not been tested in the court yet. So it's supposed to go to court uh, on September 21st. So I'll be interested to see what happens. So uh, the charges allege that the town and the officials, the municipal government officials, disturb turtles and damage their habitat by doing work with a grader um, last summer along the Peace Valley Road, about 15 kilometers northeast of the town of Bracebridge. Never a dull moment in Canadian wildlife conservation when politics are involved. So we have a new species of animals, not really wildlife. Yeah, they're wildlife in British Columbia that we can now hate. So over the last year, uh, I've been covering stories about the Canada geese and how people hate the Canada geese because they're pooping in the urban areas. Uh, there was a controversy last year about the coyotes in Stanley Park that were biting people. And there was the people that wanted to save the coyotes uh, and coexist with them in the park and just manage the people. There were the people that were just like, you know, before some child gets killed uh, or somebody's really seriously hurt or this this disease that they're carrying in, uh, the coyotes are carrying in uh, Alberta, end up in uh, infecting people, a fatal, a fatal disease that the coyotes, you know, can, can transfer, just trap them and get rid of them. Um, and there was kind of the hate on for coyotes in Stanley Park. There's also like the whole story of urban deer, um, you know, the, the divisions of, you know, get rid of the urban deer, allow us to hunt them and eat them and like, no, we want to um, sterilize them and give them birth control and coexist with them and, you know, all these sorts of things. Well, finally, we got something new that we can, we can hate. And it's uh, in the city of Richmond in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And this time we get to hate feral rabbits. Yay. Something different. Cute fuzzy rabbits, damn things, kill them all. So they're European and cottontail rabbits. So they are not native. Seems like a no brainer. Get rid of them. They've been infected with a rabbit virus that's gone rampant through the populations, caused big die offs and, you know, places like some of the university campuses where they're just like, like running everywhere. So it, it just seems like a no-brainer. Just like trap them, round them up, and, and get rid of them because they're just feral introduced rabbits. Well, not everybody thinks that way. 
cute fuzzy rabbits. So what they want to do is they want to round them up. Uh, and this has been going on for quite some time is they want to humanely and, and organizations have, they've been humanely capturing these feral rabbits, spaying and neuter them, and then relocating the rabbits to a nonprofit sanctuary for rabbits, I guess. So just Recently, the British Columbia government, in order to deal with this problem, announced some changes to the Wildlife Act, and it's uh, in the news releases said it's the first step to enhance the province's ability to manage and reduce the spread of feral rabbits. As part of the changes to the Wildlife Act, oh, poor little Ruger, puppy laying underneath my desk here, he's snoozing. Not throwing up, sounded like it. He, he, maybe he's choking on a feral rabbit. He's good, still sleeping. The changes to the Wildlife Act, it is now prohibited. This, this you need a scorecard to keep track of. So it's now prohibited to relocate or release European and Eastern cottontail rabbits, which are both invasive species. The permit that you previously required for trafficking, possessing, or exporting European rabbits has been removed, which now is me it that that is now allows it it's easier to trap and translocate the invasive rabbit, the feral rabbits. Th this is hard to wrap your mind around. So people are taking these rabbits and dumping them and then they're breeding like rabbits and making more cottontails and European cottontails. The regulation change or change to the Wildlife Act is that you don't need a permit to traffic, possess, or export them. Um, so now it's easier to trap and transport them. And I'm kind of like, well, shouldn't it be more restrictive to move these things around? Like it's prohibited to move them. You either like kill them on the spot or you can't trap them and move them around alive because then they end up in new areas. So there's a regulation in British Columbia that you cannot transport live fish. So if you're out fishing as a fisherman and you catch fish or crayfish, uh, you can't transport them alive. You've got to, you've got to kill them, um, put them on ice or whatever, and then transport them. And this is so that people aren't catching things like the introduced bass and perch and crayfish and then transporting them live and then just dumping them out in, in a new lake. So you can't transport them alive. But the regulation, the Wildlife Act has been changed so that folks that want to capture, spay, neuter, and send these feral rabbits to rabbit sanctuaries, they can now trap and transport them. The Ministry of Force uh, in charge of the change to the Wildlife Act said these regulation changes will improve the ability to move feral non-native rabbits from one location to another and support options for having existing non-native rabbits removed. It kind of seems like a provision that was put into the act so that these things can be captured and kept alive rather than just trapping and getting rid of them. So I don't know. The, there's an organization on the coast called Rabbitats. And the founder of that organization, it's a, it's a rabbit rescue group. So the founder of that group uh, is not too happy with the changes to the Wildlife Act. Uh, she said, uh, these changes will do nothing to control the feral rabbits in Richmond. The previous legislation caused the problem in the first place 
but this new change, uh, this does nothing to solve it. Her, her name is Sorel Sedman. Um, so she said that several problems with the changes, the first being that because the rabbits are still classified as wildlife under the Wildlife Act, the Richmond City Municipal Animal Control folks won't pick them up because it's wildlife belonging to the province. It's not a dog or a cat. She went on to say, we would have preferred to have seen announcements of partnership funding for humane rabbit control programs, breeder mandates, directives and resources given to municipal animal control to trap strays before they become colonies, and just taking them out of the Wildlife Act altogether. Here's the Rabbitats group actually wants money from the province and amendments to the Wildlife Act for this humane rabbit control and nurturing program at sanctuaries for two feral rabbit species. Feral rabbits, love them or hate them. I think if you could eat them, we should just let people bonk them and cook them up or at least round them up and take them to market. That's what a lot of other countries of the world would do. That's what I suggested doing with the geese. So let's let's have a bit of a rundown on what's going on, um, love or hate wildlife. So we know people in the urban centers hate the Canada geese. Native bird, iconic to Canada, the Canada goose. So in Stanley Park down in the lower mainland and some other places of British Columbia, they're trying to control the populations by killing the eggs. Um, either freezing them or shaking them or oiling them so the embryo suffocates and then putting them back in the nest so the parents think that they, you know, are still raising a brood, nothing happens, they move on. That's the ethical way to deal with Canada geese. Not something you see anybody out there advocating for problem bears, you know, controlling the population by freezing the cubs and then putting them back in the den. Um, but it's okay if it's a Canada goose. So coyotes uh, in Edmonton, Calgary, uh, Stanley Park in Vancouver, people want to coexist with them. Other people just want to trap them and get rid of them before someone gets killed. Feral rabbits, not even native to British Columbia, and we want to save and relocate them and let them live happily ever after in sanctuaries. Couple other stories in Canada related to what shall we do with wildlife that we don't want or living things we don't want. So in Alberta, in southern Alberta, they got a problem with some lakes there where people are dumping their goldfish. And they, so there's populations of feral goldfish in these lakes and they get really big. So we don't, we're not advocating to humanely capture the goldfish and then have them in um, tank sanctuaries uh, to live out their days. They're going to deal with them with a goldfishing derby. <laughs> so they're having a big sponsored fun event and trying to get people out to catch the goldfish. Parks Canada wants to get rid of smallmouth bass out of the lakes in Riding Mountain National Park. And so park officials are being trained to spearfish. And so there's no saving the smallmouth bass, which were probably put there by Parks Canada back in the 50s or something. Um, 
there's no sending the smallmouth bass off to the great bass sanctuary or bass pro tanks. Um, we're going to spearfish and kill them and get rid of them. So I, I just, I keep following all these stories because I just find it is just fascinating. It just kind of blows my mind of what we fall in love with and what we hate and what we're willing to try to coexist with and what we just want to like kill and get rid of. Um, we don't want bears killed because they're habituated to garbage. We want them relocated and we relocate them and then people are upset. Like just, it it's a fascinating journey into the psyche of Canadians and trying to understand what's what we're in love with and what we hate as far as wildlife goes in this country, whether they're introduced or feral or not. What are your thoughts? Here's my final thoughts. If feral rabbits had to take on great white sharks, my money's on great white sharks. Jaws versus feral rabbits. Maybe that's what I should call this issue. Long live Jaws. All right, everybody. That's what's going on around Canada. We'll see you in the next episode.